0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
1: I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
0: The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie?
1: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. hello Hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm DeBlana Chakraborty. And recently, our co-worker, Christiana, shared a strange story with us. And you might have seen it in the news. It's been in a lot of sites, but most notably on MSNBC. They originally covered the story. A reclusive heiress named Huguette Clark died in May 2011 under a pseudonym in an unmarked room at Beth Israel Medical Center. And she was 104 years old, so a near-contemporary of Brooke Astor, and the owner of estates in Santa Barbara, California, in Connecticut, and the largest apartment on Fifth Avenue, which this this is kind of mind-blowing here, 42 rooms worth $100 million. I I looked it up in Google Maps, and it's like right across the street from Central Park.
0: Yeah, but one of the most remarkable things about the story, in my opinion at least, is that the last known photo of her was from 1930. She hadn't had any photos of herself and not many people had seen her around in the past 20 years or so, right? Very few people had seen her really since the 60s. Yeah, but at one point she was a great heiress, a would-be socialite. At the age of 21, she had inherited one-fifth of her father's estate, the whole worth of which was 300 million or about 3.6 billion in today's terms. So Huguette's own story is really fascinating, and we're going to get into that a little more later. But her age, her father, and her inheritance connects her to one of the most interesting stories of the Gilded Age and the West – The Wars of the Copper Kings.
1: Yeah, so Butte, Montana is a far cry from a fancy Fifth Avenue apartment, but that's where this story starts, and it's where our feud starts as well. So I hope we've intrigued you properly. In the 1860s, miners from Virginia City discovered gold in what is now Butte, Montana. By the 1870s, the game had shifted to silver mining, and by 1874, a man named Marcus Daly, who was an Irish immigrant, Grant, with a, quote, nose for ore, had struck a 50 or 100 foot wide vein of copper, depending on which source you're looking at. And not long after that, the city of Butte was formed and was soon connected to the wider world by rail. And that, in turn, began the copper boom.
0: Yeah, and that was fueled by a need for telegraph wires, electric power lines, and electric motors, and other industries sprung up to support the mining, like lumber and railroads and a handful of companies came to dominate the state's industry. Daly became one of the first so-called Copper Kings, along with his partner, George Hurst, William Randolph Hurst's father. And Daly's chief rival was Hugh father, William Andrews Clark, who had been born in a Pennsylvania log cabin and who started off panning for gold and selling eggs at a markup to miners.
1: Yeah, and later we have a man named Frederick Augustus Hines entering the picture. He's a German immigrant. He joined the Barons, but he only appears for round two of this war we'll be discussing. The first battle was fought between Daly and Clark, who, in addition to being fabulously wealthy, desperately wanted a political career, and that's really at the root of these two men's rivalry. So we're going to make it clear.
0: Round one, the first election. Yeah, and just a little background. Montana at this time was, of course, not yet a state. It was a territory, and there had to be a non-Indian population of 60,000 before it could apply for statehood, though they sort of jumped the gun on that a little bit.
1: They did. They, they tried to get statehood before they really legally
0: could. It was still allowed, though, to have a territorial representative to Congress, someone who could lobby and petition real representatives. In 1888, William Andrews Clark decided he wanted to run for that position.
1: Yeah, but Daly wasn't about to let power slip into the hands of his chief copper rival, especially because he didn't think that all of his interests would be successfully represented by Clark to the representatives. So he worked to elect Clark's Republican opponent. And he bribed voters with things like cigars and whiskey, or he threatened, probably more menacingly here, he threatened his own employees with firing if, if they went out and voted for Clark. So Clark lost and obviously held a pretty big grudge against Daley for the rest of his life.
0: That wasn't the end of the story, though, of course. There was a second election just a year later, and at that point, Montana had become a state. Unsurprisingly, they also soon adopted a secret ballot after that last election's fiasco. And Clark, he decides to have another go this time. And this time he's running for U.S. Senate. At the time, senators weren't elect- elected directly, though. They were elected by the state legislature. And that posed a bit of a problem for Montana, where each party would only elect its own representatives.
1: They ended up with this terribly awkward situation. A brand new state sent four senators to Washington, two Democrats, one of whom was Clark, and two Republicans. And at the time, the Republicans controlled the Senate. So the two Democratic senators were sent home. Sorry again, Clark lost staff. He doesn't give up, though. This guy just keeps on trying to get political office. The third election occurs in 1893. And this time he wasn't about to let party politics get in the way of his ambitions. He wasn't going to be sent home again. So this time he bribed the legislators to vote for
0: him, regardless of their political affiliation. That's one way to get around it. But Daly, not to be outdone, followed right behind him, counter-bribing all the people that he had bribed to reverse their vote. And Clark lost again, but only by three votes.
1: Yeah. So the following year, there was no Senate election to squabble over. So the guys had to do something else with their time besides raking in the money from all of their business. They fought over the state capitol location. And of course, having the state capitol near your own business is a it's a profitable thing. You have access to your representatives. You have some sort of influence and power. And after an initial election where there were quite a few cities in Montana to choose from, the top choices ended up being Helena and Anaconda, which was Daly's own mining town. So Daly obviously supported his own location. He wanted the capital to be right outside of his mine. But Clark arranged to support Helena if its businessmen would help him in turn get elected to the Senate next chance he had.
0: Yeah, and the two men put everything they had into this competition. They staged parades and fireworks displays. They gave out $5 bills. Clark even made up a miniature copper collars to show what a stranglehold Anaconda would have on the state if the Capitol moved there. He gave them out like party favors, basically. Yeah, and the Montana Historical Society estimates that they ended up each spending about $56 per head on the election, which would translate to about $1,356 today. Clark won in this instance. The Capitol went to Helena.
1: Yeah, so triumphant Clark again ran for Senate in 1899, but just as the legislature was about to vote, and he was pretty confident this time that he was finally going to make it, State Senator Fred Whiteside stormed into the room, waving around four envelopes filled with $30,000, accusing Clark of bribing him and a few other state senators. Seems like everybody would have known this by this point. But I guess somebody coming in waving the cash around really stood for something. So ultimately, four state senators said that Clark tried to bribe them, and there was testimony in front of a grand jury and a lot of hullabaloo, yet Clark still managed to get elected to the U.S. Senate. And right away, opponents filed a petition which launched a Senate investigation led by the Committee on Privileges and Elections to see what exactly had happened during this campaign.
0: Yeah, and after hearing 96 witnesses, the committee decided that he, in fact, wasn't in Title to his seat. He had given bribes ranging from $240 to $100,000. His son had organized further bribes like paid mortgages, new ranches, new banks, and cleared debts. And it also became clear that his old rival, Daly, had spent as much on counter bribes. Which I think some people on the committee sort of tried to use that
1: as an excuse like, oh, he had Daly out there bribing all these people. He had to do something. But obviously, that's. Two wrongs don't make a right, Clark, as we as we know.
0: Yeah, but Clark said privately, I never bought a man who wasn't for sale, but he also resigned before the Senate could act on this information. Yeah, he, he was
1: furious, obviously. He finally got to the Senate, and, and he's disgraced. So in 1901, though, he finally got his wish. In the fifth election, a new state legislature, which was mostly elected with his help, so all the guys were on his side. <laughs> to stack the decks. Exactly. Voted him to the Senate. And Daly had died by this point in 1900. And he obviously couldn't put up a fight. So with his prime opponent gone, Clark made it to the Senate. He didn't have all fans, though. Mark Twain, for one, said some pretty nasty things about him.
0: Yeah, he said, Clark is as rotten a human being as can be found anywhere under the flag. He is a shame to the American nation and no one has helped to send him to the Senate who did not know that his proper place was the penitentiary with a chain and ball on his legs. Yeah. Pretty brutal, Mark Twain. Yeah, so Clark served one term.
1: But by the time Clark finally got that long-awaited Senate seat, a new battle in the wars of the Copper Kings had already begun. Two years before Daly's death, he had sold part of his mind to Standard Oil. Of course, probably most of you have, have heard of that company, William Rockefeller's company, one of the greatest or at least largest American companies at the time. Rockefeller and executive Henry H. Rogers formed a holding company after that called Amalgamated Copper company and they started buying up other big producers Clark's included uh, and there were a few scandals right from the start but Daly's 1900 death really gave Rogers and Rockefeller even more control which was not necessarily good news for Montana.
0: yeah because this competition between Daly and Clark had at least left workers with some options and leverage but now there was a monopoly. people called it the company. One guy, however, was trying to outfox amalgamated, or at least blatantly steal from them, depending on how you look at it. And I'm referring to the man that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, a new copper king, Frederick Augustus Hines. And he had been working in Butte since 1889. He cashed in by working the Apex Law, which was a law that said that the owner of a mining claim could pursue any vein of ore that rose to the surface of his claim, even if it went onto someone else's land. Now, Heinz knew that the copper veins were a complete mess, just super interconnected. So no one would really be able to tell which were the veins that apexed his claim. So long story short, he started mining amalgamated claims, among others. And so when the company sued him, he basically bought the judges off, and they would throw out the suits, forcing Amalgamated to go all the way to the Supreme Court.
1: Well, he was even cleverer than that. With his first investments, he had bought the judges knowing that Amalgamated was going to come in and contest them. So he knew he was safe right from the start, as long as his judges stuck with him. Ultimately, there were 100 lawsuits by 1902 brought against Hines by Amalgamated. But Bute and and many other people in Montana supported Hines over the New Yorkers they they thought that he had a better chance of representing their interests than than Rockefeller and and his company and finally in October 1903 a very frustrated amalgamated copper shut down its operations in protest and 15,000 people were suddenly jobless. So this is shutting down the mines and all of the associated businesses as well. Only the newspapers stayed open so that they could keep on blasting Hines, blaming him for causing all this trouble in the first place. Interestingly, when Hines finally got a chance to explain himself, the people of Butte stuck with him. They thought, well, okay, his explanation is is better than that of of the company.
0: But they still wanted to stop the shutdown. So Montana's governor concedes to Amalgamated's demands. They decide that the company will be allowed to have its cases heard outside of Butte. So they'll be able to get away from Heinz's bought judges.
1: Yeah, so Amalgamated won. And Heinz eventually sold his shares to them for $12 million. And soon after that, William Clark sold his too. And all the companies became Anaconda Copper Mining Company, and just sort of a side note on that company, it has a strange history. It goes on till 1977 when it was sold, but it bought the Chile Copper Company and had its mines expropriated by the Chilean president, Salvador Allende, who was exhumed recently, as many of our listeners alerted us. Um, And in March of this year, the old Anaconda Copper Mining Company was designated a Superfund site. So not a very good history, I guess.
0: Right. So that's the history of the company. But what about Clark's career? Well, while serving that one Senate term that he got to serve, he announced in 1904 that three years earlier he had been remarried secretly in France. He was 65 at the time and his new wife was 26 and had been his ward. And they already had a two-year-old named Andre. Huguette was born in 1906 and she was the last of Clark's six kids.
1: Yeah, and this was, you can, you can see tabloid-style news papers regarding mm-hmm. this story it's he's married and has two kids and it it must have all been quite scandalous, scandalous yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the family moved into a 120 room house at 5th Avenue and 77th Street and uh you can also see pictures of this i i put one in our notes so we could admire it while discussing but Um, you, you wouldn't admire it too much. It's really kind of horrifying. It was known as Clark's Folly. It just combines almost every architectural style you can imagine, but it was elaborate. That's one thing that we can definitely say about it. It had Turkish baths, it had a rotunda, it had its own railroad line. The oak ceilings were imported from Sherwood Forest and it even included four art galleries because Clark was quite an art buff. He collected works from Degas and Rembrandt and Titian and Rousseau. Um, But that's where our our young Huguette grew up.
0: Yeah, Huguette actually took the traditional society girl track for a time. She attended Spence's school for girls. She was married at 22. But after a divorce two years later, she moved in with her mother and started to gradually withdraw from the public. That last known photo of her, um, taken in 1930 that we mentioned earlier in the podcast, that dates from the day of her divorce after her mother's 1963 death, she was rarely seen.
1: Yeah, but the, the unusual thing, I think the thing that might so capture people's imagination, too, about this story is that she didn't let all those properties just decay. They were all kept up to remarkable standards, really. The Santa Barbara estate contained pictures of Andre growing up, even though uh, she had died at 16. That's Huguette's older sister, to remind everyone. Um, 215 acres were given to to the Boy Scouts. And, and the house in Connecticut was the same, kept up immaculately, even though Huguette never even spent a night there. Um, the building staff at the Fifth Avenue apartment, even though that is where Huguette lived for, for a lot of her life, rarely saw her.
0: Yeah, they would just catch an occasional glimpse. And it's believed that she checked herself into the hospital about 22 years ago.
1: It's still unclear how the estate will be divvied up. I think there, again, to make a Brooke Astor comparison, there have been some fears that maybe there was some sort of elder abuse or manipulation with her estate, but that's not uh, definite yet. and It is still pretty pretty new story
0: yeah i think there's still a lot that we have to learn about her personal story and uh, just about this new story unfolding with her estate so
1: yeah I, i just i think it's interesting maybe because she so removed herself from modern life she is sort of a stronger connection to the era of her father almost we we don't have other associations to to make for her
0: yeah, she's a connection, I think, to a time that people are still really a time of in American history that people are still really very interested in. Um, and I think that's a good transition into our listener mail segment. We have a postcard from Stephanie. In Australia, and she's an American living in Australia. She says, Dear Sarah Dublina, thank you for putting out a consistently interesting, informative, and educational podcast. I can't choose a favorite, but would love more on American royalty. For example, the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts or facts behind the myths. Thanks again for helping my walks to work go by more quickly. So already, the Rockefellers mentioned in this podcast. Hopefully, you'll like this one, Stephanie. We can we can check
1: it off the list. It also has a kiwi on the front, which, as you all now know from from Facebook, I have a stuffed animal kiwi that I got from a New Zealand listener pretty awesome. Uh, we also have a cool postcard from John and it is a postcard from Havana and I don't think we've ever gotten a postcard from Cuba before. He was he was betting on that. I think he had contacted us on Twitter already to, to say he promised a postcard from somewhere where we had never gotten one from before and I hazarded to guess Atlantis because I know we've definitely <laughs> never gotten an Atlantis postcard, but it was pretty close. So he wrote in to say, I spent the last 10 weeks traveling solo through Central America doing photography work with two great NGOs. And he also suggested that we cover some Cuban history at some point. So thank you, John, for the postcard. It's a, it's a lovely picture of a sunset, and fishing. So two fun postcards for the day. Yeah,
0: and some possible suggestions for future episodes. If you have any suggestions for a future episode, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at in History. Yeah, and if you want to learn
1: a little bit more about the cleanup kind of stuff that's probably going to be going down at the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, we have an article called What is Superfund Redevelopment, written by our own Jane McGrath so you can check it out by searching for what is super fun redevelopment on the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com be sure to check out our new video podcast stuff from the future join House howstuffworks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow the House howstuffworks iphone
0: app has arrived download it today on itunes
1: Zumo Play.